The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Um, we've been walking through the book of Genesis, and admittedly, I'm going slower than I anticipated. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at verses 8 through 13, and uh, just to refresh our mind as to what has taken place, we remember that uh, God had placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and the serpent had come. Uh, Satan himself had embodied this serpent and came, and he questioned God's goodness, he questioned God's authority, and he, he draws out Eve, and he says to her uh, in verse 2 of that, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Everything that we see here that takes place in these verses as... um, Satan comes and he tempts Eve. We, we see how Eve handles the instruction of the Word of God. And, and in many ways, we find that we also, if we're honest with ourselves, we see that we too handle the instructions of the Word of God very similar at times that Eve did. I want you to notice, first of all, that, that Eve minimized the freedom that God had given to her and Adam. Because God had said, and she even repeats it in this passage, that we're free to eat all of the fruit of the garden, but there's that one little restriction that God has placed there, that we're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what Eve didn't recognize, or what she forgot, that God had given her and Adam tremendous freedom, right? From any tree you can eat, but there's that one tree that you cannot eat from. She forgot her freedom in Christ. And so often it's tempting for us as believers, while we know we have freedom in Christ, that we see the one thing or the two things or the things that we're restricted from and we kind of have the idea that God is holding back from me. And we forget the freedom that he has given to us in Christ and we go after that one thing or things that, that God has said for your good, because of my love for you, I do not want you to partake in this. Notice the second thing she did. She added to what God's restrictions were. Notice again, look there in verse, uh, verse 2. She said that we may eat from every tree, but God said you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Now that's what I call legalism or Phariseeism, right? 
that you add to, you put on other restrictions to what God's command is, and we distort the Word of God. And what did she do here? She placed more of an idea of rather than God's goodness and His grace and His freedom, but the idea was that God is there as some ogre wanting to restrict me from everything. And He's even said, don't even touch it, but that's not what God said. The last thing that I notice that she does in this is that she softened his word in relation to the consequences. God had said, for on that day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And as she was tempted by Satan, she began to say, well, surely God is not going, surely a God that loves me would not discipline me, right? Surely God, if he loved, he wouldn't restrict that way. And she minimized all of the restrictions. Her revision of God's Word left her open to believe the lie of Satan. Can I tell you this, that any revision we make to God's Word, whether it's to add to God's Word or to take away from God's Word, it puts us in the same position that Eve found herself in, that we are open to temptation from the enemy. Because the greatest thing the enemy wants to do in our lives, the believer's life, is to minimize or change or twist the Word of God. God had said, and she opened herself up, to the enemy's attack here in this. She had seemed to have forgotten the goodness of God. And she was believing a lie of the enemy rather than to rely on her experience that she had with God. They, they walked with God in the garden. They fellowship with God in that dwelling place with him. And the joy and the goodness that came with that, she seemed to rather believe a lie and place restrictions or minimize God's word rather than to hold on to the goodness and the fellowship that was there with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this in his book, Temptations. Bear with me as I read read it. Uh, But I want you to think about what he says here when it refers to or talks about temptations. Bonhoeffer says this, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge, or love of fame and power, or greed for money. The joy that we know in God extinguishes in us the joy, and we seek all of our joy in the creature. In other words, rather than basking in rather than enjoying the joy of God and fellowship with Him. When that opportunity of sin is there, we seek the creature, the creature or that object rather than the joy of the Lord. How many of you have ever sinned? Let me see a question. All right. Do you know, did you recognize that the moment you partook in that, you participated in that, or you did not do what you knew that God was calling you to do, that the joy of the Lord was immediately gone? There may be a dissatisfying replacement of that joy with a momentary happiness. Sin kind of makes us happy, doesn't it? Let's be honest. But it separates us in that fellowship and the joy that we have in the Lord. He goes on to say this, that at this moment, that is the moment of temptation when we give in, at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. 
one loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with the hatred of God, but he fills us with forgetfulness of God. And if we're not careful, we'll repeat the same patterns that Eve did here in this. Now here Eve partakes of the fruit, and then she passes it on. It says here in the Scripture, and then she gave it to her husband. When I look at this and we read the rest of Scripture, we see that it's always Adam's sin that's referred to in Scripture. And the reason for that is Adam is more culpable in this instance than Eve is. If you'll remember that Adam was the one that God had given the command to. And Adam kind of seems to passively stand by, and there's evidence with the plurality of the language here in the original that that Adam was not in some other part of the garden while the serpent deceived Eve. There's evidence that he was right there and passively standing aloof while Eve partook of this. God had given it directly to him. He was likely present with Eve but he stood by passively. And I put a little parenthesis in my mind as I thought about this. As a man, as a husband, as a father, as a man in the church body, as a leader in the body, and all of us men are called to do that, I ask the question, how many times have I passively stood by while others may have indulged or partaken of what I know would have brought harm? It's a question we need to ask. And so at this moment, the moment that they sinned against them, paradise was lost. All that they knew of the tranquil fellowship with God in the garden, in that place of meeting him, with him in the garden, where, that it was unhindered in every way, fellowship with him and carefree nakedness it, that last immediately that was gone and they both died right then and there. Because God had said, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And we may question, well, wait a minute, they didn't die. They lived 930 more years, right? Spiritually, they died. Biblical death is very different than what we think of in death. You see, biblical death, when it talks about death, talks of more of a separation than a ceasing of existing And at that moment that they sinned against God, they died in that they were separated from Him. Their bodies continued to live. They continued to exist. And by the way, we will exist for all of eternity. The question is, will we exist for all of eternity in life in the presence of God? Or will we exist for all of eternal in an eternal state of death separated from God? At that moment, death entered in as they died partook of that fruit. Sin immediately, and that's hard for us to imagine because we are sinful creatures. We were born into sin. We were born depraved. It's hard for us to know anything else other than sin nature. We can imagine what it would have been like, but at that moment, sin penetrated every single bit of their life and every bit of them while the taste of the fruit was still in their mouth. Sin entered in and paradise was lost and they and the human race would never be the same. As a matter of fact, all of creation would have never been the same. Sin immediately penetrated I think Paul may have had this in mind as he wrote these verses because in chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord said that the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. 
Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death, to be cut off from the land of living. The payment for sin is to be separated and cut off from that which is living. He writes again in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that sin came into the world by one man, and therefore death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all had sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, as he's writing to those believers in Ephesus, reminding them of how they once were, but now they've been saved through the blood of Christ, he says this, and you too were dead in sins and once where you once walked. You see, there's not a human being that has ever been born that is not born dead in sin. We were talking of this the other evening, I can't remember, maybe at the dinner table, and I made the comment with all the family there, anybody that does not believe and knows, this was our D group Friday morning, any person that does not believe in the doctrine of total depravity has never had children. Amen? Any person who does not believe in the doctrine of total depravity does not know themselves very well. You see, the one thing that every one of us have in this room that, that we have in common is that we are all born in sin and we're sinners by nature. The thing that divides or separates some of us in this room is that some of us have recognized that there's absolutely nothing we in of ourselves can do about our sin. That we're helpless and we're hopeless to absolve that sin, to be saved from that sin. And we have trusted and recognized that God made a provision for our sin through Jesus Christ. Uh, there may be some in this room or there may be some that are watching this morning on one of the different media feeds that, that you have not recognized that there's nothing that you can do about your sin that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's only one thing that you can do, and that's to trust Christ and His provision for your sin. Today, you can do that, and your life will change forever. Can somebody say amen to that? You see, they went from one state to another state. Imagine this. They, they were in a state where there was perpetual life. And they went from life to now knowing death. They had not yet experienced physical death, but they understood what that death was to be separated, to have their life separated from God spiritually. They went from a condition of sinlessness all of a sudden to sin. They went from the condition of harmony with God and with each other, and now they had alienation from God and they had alienation with each other. They went from a sense of, of trust to distrust. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. They went from a sense of ease to disease. We'll see the way as this passage goes on where we begin looking at verse 8, how they began to deal with their sin. And we'll see how God also dealt with them in the same way that he deals with us in our sin. My three-and-a-half-year-old twin grand kids have gotten on a new thing now, and it's called hide and seek. And they don't realize that Poppy can't get down the way Poppy once got down. But, but they're always saying, can, can, can you find us now? They don't call it hide and seek yet, but they say, can you find us? And we play this game in the house. The last five minutes, they want to go on for an hour. 
of hide and seek, and, and really they don't, they don't want to hide. They really want you to find me, right? Poppy, I'm in, I'm, 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 Eleanor's in there, Poppy, Poppy. And, uh, but here in the garden, we find that they don't play hide and seek, but what we see unfolding is there is a reverse of that, and that is seek and hide. Look at verse 8. It says that, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. But among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. The first thing I want us to notice in this is that, that God knew, God knows everything, Right? God knew what had taken place. God knew that they had been, that Eve had been deceived. God knew that Adam passively stood by and allowed his wife to break the command, the word of God, and he partook in it himself. Once he figured out she didn't really die, is kind of what I think. You know, it's kind of like bringing the bringing the food to the king first, and one eats. I think Adam may have stood back and said, "Let's see if she really dies." You know, she didn't die, so it must be good for me. But the first thing that, I, that stands out to me is that they're hiding and God seeks them out. Adam made the statement, he, he was found. You were found. It's not that you were out of God's visibility. It's not that he didn't know what you, where you were. But aren't you glad that God sought you out? And God says, I see the condition that Adam and Eve are in now. They're afraid and they're hiding. But rather than waiting for them to try to clamor to me, I'm going to seek them out. There's some beautiful passages in Scripture that speak of God seeking us out. Let me read a few of them to you. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11, as he's speaking to Israel, he says, Behold, I... I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. You're praying for somebody in your life that's not saved. You're praying for a family member that's not saved. Begin praying and say, God, will you seek them out? God, will you track them down? As Billy Graham said, would you send the Holy Spirit and be the, the hound dog of heaven and find, seek them out? And God, would you draw them to you? Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 16, it says, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. That God seeks the lost. And I know there are verses like in Jeremiah that say that if, that if you seek the Lord with your whole heart, you'll find him and he'll be there. But overwhelmingly throughout Scripture, we recognize and realize that we are incapable of seeking God out. And unless he bears on the heart of one who's separated from him and draws them, they will not come to him. So we pray that, that God would seek them out. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Lastly, Matthew chapter 18, verse 12. I love this. If a man has 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, 
Does not he leave the 99 on the mountain and go after in search of the one that went astray? This morning, if you've come to know Christ, if you know him, would you just thank him right now, knowing that you weren't smart enough to seek out God, knowing that you weren't good enough to seek out God, that God Almighty sought you out, and just give him a clap thank for that. Amen? You see, what was once a sacred sound in the garden, he heard God in the garden. What was once a sacred sound because he enjoyed sweet fellowship with the Lord, that sound now became dread. Notice what Adam does. You see, the Lord seeks him out, but Adam had already hidden. Look at verse 8, the last part of that. He says, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Prior to that, we see that they had sown fig leaves on them to cover their nakedness, and they're recognizing, they're beginning to recognize that the fig leaves weren't quite enough. You know, it's a pathetic delusion that they were in and a pathetic delusion that you and I sometimes get into in that we think we can hide from God, right? That we want to play hide. God, I'm going to hide and see if you can find me. But isn't that the way that sin drags us away? It, it separates us from one another in our relationship with each other. It separates husbands and wives. It separates moms and dads from their children. It separates grandparents from their grandchildren. It separates culture where they're completely divided. Sin causes separation. And so you you and I might think that that it's our sin that that nobody else knows. Nobody else is going to find this out. But you know what? They do know. They may not know the specifics, but they know there's a separation that's there. You see, separation, sin separates us from one another and sin separates us from God. I love what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, verses 2, 7, and 8. He says to God, You know when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed and show, you're there also. The other thing that, that sin does, not only does it cause separation, but, but sin causes hiding. Have you ever sin knowingly or it's come to your mind? You just can't wait to have that sweet, quiet time with God the next morning, right? No, that's not how it works. We hide from Him. Until finally we rest and say the only thing that can take care of this broken fellowship is a confession and an acknowledgement of that with him. And you know what happens? I love it. Bam! We're right back there, right? Somebody says, that's too easy. No. We have the idea sometimes that we've got to climb that ladder again back into God's presence. That maybe I'll Maybe I'll read my Bible more. Maybe I'll attend small group. Maybe I'll attend more services. Maybe I'll give more. Maybe I'll, I'll go volunteer at the food bank. None of that 
restores fellowship with God except an acknowledgement and a confession. And he's so ready to receive us right back in his graces. God finds him. I love the way that God seeks him out. God asked two questions of Adam, which God already knew the answers. He, he, or one question here, he says, where are you? Again, God knew. This is kind of a remedial question. God knew exactly where Adam was. But he says, where are you? It's almost like he's saying, why are you there? I remember when I was a young teenage boy, I snuck out of the house on a summer morning. It was hot in August or sometime like that in Georgia, and the air's heavy, right? Mom and dad were in bed, and I go out, and I go out to the well in front of the house. We had this, you can draw water from the well kind of thing. We used to do that back in the day, right? We literally would draw a well from, and, and I had a cigarette, And, and I snuck out there at the well, and I lit that cigarette. A couple of minutes later, my, my dad, I didn't know he'd come out of the house. He's on the porch, and then all of a sudden, I hear his voice saying, What are you doing? As if he didn't know. See, I didn't realize a heavy August humidity you know, just kind of lingers there. It's that kind of question. What I love about this is that God asked Adam the question so that Adam might acknowledge and recognize and realize what he's doing. What are you doing, Adam? Why are you there? Notice what his answer was. I was afraid. Why were you afraid? Because I was naked. I want us to recognize and realize what, what Adam responded in is the same way that we respond when God says, where are you? The only emotion that is expressed here is a fear. And we forget the verse that says, a perfect love casts out all fear. We kind of see an arrow of grace, if you will, in God's dealing with Adam. Notice he didn't come to Adam and say, Adam, I know you ate of the tree. He wanted Adam to recognize that he ate of the tree. God deals with us the same way. You see, we have a father that draws us to him rather than drives us out. God's speaking to some of us this morning and Recognize and realize that God is wanting to draw you out because of His great love. He doesn't want to drive you out. Now, He's a just God, and eventually there will have to be justice that's meted out or discipline, but God wants to draw us out of that which has us in bondage so that we might be restored back into fellowship with Him. Notice the excuses that they begin to give. God first asked Adam, Adam, who told you that you were naked? Was it the serpent that told you you were naked? Did Eve tell you you were naked? Did you happen to see a reflection in the pool, you know? Adam, who told you that you were naked? 
And he says, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you to eat? I want us to remember that in verse 25 of chapter 2, after God had had created them, the the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And here all of a sudden they recognize in verse 7 of chapter 3 that their eyes were open, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. Adam begins to give an excuse. (laughs) God, it's that woman you gave to me. (laughs) Think about what Eve's thinking as Adam's saying this. Pal, you just threw me under the bus. It's the woman. (laughs) Honeymoon's over, baby. Marital bliss is gone. And by the way, 930 years, you think she forgot about it? (laughs) Don't think so. (laughs) What Adam does here, though, is an extremely evil thing. Think about it for a minute. This is the woman that God had given to him. This is the one that was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And he throws that out the window now that sin has entered in. And he says, that woman you gave to me. You see, before, after God brought her to him, he had said, wow, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. It was harmonious relationship and sin comes in and bam, now it's the woman's fault. You see the road sin will take us down? Not only does he blame Eve, but he blames God in this too. He says, God, you gave me this woman. God, I'm not guilty. You are because you gave her to me. God, I remember the sequence of events, and and God, I knew that, God, you had given me this woman, and we had this period of dating, and we loved each other, and everything was great, and we got married, and then all of a sudden, things go to pot. God, if you hadn't brought that woman into my life, or man, either way. Look at the second excuse. (laughs) They begin to pass the buck. Adam says, hey, it's not the woman. It's not me, God. It's the woman that you gave me. I call this the blame game. Ask Eve, Eve, why? Uh, It wasn't me. It was the serpent. He deceived me. And she's right. She was deceived. Adam just outright transgressed against God because he's the one that had the word of God that was given to him. Somebody said this. I want to quote him. Can't recall who said it. But said, to err is human, to blame it on others or on God is more human. Can, can I read that one more time? To err is human, to blame it on others or God is more human. And sometimes we, just like Adam and Eve, not, not only do we blame, we shift blame, but sometimes we blame it on our circumstances as well. We sometimes blame God for placing us in circumstances that we regard as too much for us to bear. Well, you know what? If if I had gotten that raise last year, then I wouldn't need to be padding my expense account 
the circumstances are such that I, 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 I just have to do that. I'm going to get in trouble for making this statement. It's a PG statement, so put your ears over any youngster's ears. God, if she just would more often, so I, I got to go find it somewhere else. Or God, if she really respected me and loved me the way that I expect her to love me, then I wouldn't need to go somewhere else to find that affection. Or God, if he really, if he really loved, if he cared about me, then, but this, this, this person, so that maybe you, you kind of get the idea. Or if I hadn't been so depressed, then I wouldn't have done that. The circumstances that where I was under, it, it, it's, just, it's just so great. I, 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 we understand. Sometimes we, we use lousy excuses being our disposition. God, you made me this way. I, I mean, God, you, you know that I have passions and appetite, but they're not being met here. And so, God, I know this is what your word says, but, but God, you're the one that made me this way. And so I, I, I'm just kind of following along with the way that you made me. Victimhood seems to be the one of our day, doesn't it? My mama. My daddy. The system, man. My wife. My husband. Etc. I I I I I sin, I act this way because of and I'm just a victim of that. Can I tell you that the only thing that we are victims of, now these things may happen to us. They may be horrific, but, but let, me, let me lovingly say this, that, that for us to live a life of victimhood regardless of what it is and have the idea that we're owed more because we're a victim in this, can I tell you the only thing that we're a victim to? We're a victim to how we respond to these circumstances in our lives. especially as believers. Because God has given us a spirit of love and a sound mind. God has given to us, He resides in us, the Holy Spirit. And we have power, we're more than conquerors through Him who has been in us. And we can overcome the evil and we can overcome all of these maybe past experiences. Can I tell you who's to blame? Can I suggest Jesus? Let me rephrase that. I had to get your attention. Better said would be more accurately, we are to rest all of our blame on him. For you see, yes, we take personal responsibility. And yes, there are consequences for disobedience. But thank God that when you and I fall, He has borne the blame for us. And when He hung on that cross, every sin, the sin of the world was placed on Him. 
He who knew no sin. He who had eternal fellowship with the Father. And your sins and my sins, our past, our present, and our future sins were laid on him. And God poured out his wrath, the wrath that you and I deserve, on him for our behalf and for his glory. John tells us very clearly that that he is our advocate. He stands in our defense in the courtroom. and, And when the case is brought against us, he says, yes, my client is guilty. But let me remind you that I've taken his sentence. I've taken her sentence for them because they've been washed in the eternal blood of the Lamb. In conclusion, Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. He says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We're going to close this morning. And I'd like you to... Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.